off to a great start. Welcome back, everyone. This is Phone Ho, a podcast about spooky things that happen in the wilderness and state parks and national parks. My name is Steph. I'm your host. And with me today, I have the beautiful Amanda Wellborn. Hey, Hello. everybody. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> She's here to talk about a very interesting story of hers that happened while she was on a hike yeah interesting interesting to say the least yeah all right I'm gonna let her take it away go ahead Amanda hey everybody I've never done anything like this so please forgive me this story takes place in little big econ state forest for Orlando natives and locals probably that's one of the more popular trails outside of um, Wakaiva. And to start, I'm going to give you a little bit of information about the park. I pulled this directly from the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So you can just go there. I'm basically reading straight from that. So essentially, we call it the Little Econ or just Little Big Econ. So Little Big Econ State Forest is located in the eastern portion of Seminole County in Geneva, Florida. It's less than an hour drives from Orlando, which is why we go there a lot. And it's actually the park that I went to the most as a child. My family, so most weekends we would go out there. Moving on, Little Big Econ State Forest, it's um, over 10,000 acres. Forest name comes from combining the names of Little Econolachi River and Larger Econolachi River, which come together just south of the forest. Now, my family always referred to it as Econolachi, but I've heard some folks call it Econolakachi. Um, so it really depends. I've heard a lot of iterations of this. It is a Muscogee word and translates literally to earth mound stream and means the river of many mounds. Long ago, Native Americans named the river for the multitude of man-made earthen mounds along the waterway. This property has seen many historical uses such as turpentine distilleries, cattle ranching, and row crops. Also contains a portion of the old Florida East Coast Railway. However, currently the forest is managed to restore and maintain native ecosystems, protect and manage plants and animals, protect archaeological and historical sites, provide outdoor recreation, and practice sustainable forest and agriculture management activities. They do a lot of prescribed fire alongside natural fire just to reduce the hazards of wildfires in this area. Some natural features you'll see there, it's most notable for its narrow winding Econolachi River, which flows 17 miles through the forest and empties into the St. Johns River. The Econolachi River is designated as an outstanding Florida waterway and is the second largest tributary to the St. John's River. The St. John's River, which makes up the eastern boundary of the forest, is designated as an American Heritage River at 310 miles long and is the longest river in Florida. This forest also provides a crucial source of protection for wetlands and associated natural communities within the floodplains of the Econolachi and St. John's River. Other natural communities include wet prairie, pine flatwoods, sand hill, and scrub. The forest supports a variety of wildlife such as alligators, southern fox squirrel, gopher tortoise, gopher frog, bald eagle, sand hill crane, deer, typically I would think white-tailed deer, uh, turkey, gray squirrel, roseate, spoonbill, and wood stork. 
Typically, you'll see folks use the park for horseback riding, bicycling, hiking, canoeing. You see a lot of fishing out there. It is one of the easiest trails. It's a very family-friendly trail. I mean, it's Florida, so there's not a lot of elevation. Uh, Very, very flat. I don't know if you could actually consider it hiking, but here we are. Um, So typically, most people do start the trail from the Bar Street Hiking Trailhead. And that's actually where we started. So from there, I'm going to pick up to my story. (laughs) (laughs) So now that you know a little bit about Econ, now you probably have a little bit more orientation of the park and what it kind of looks like. This trek involved me and a close girlfriend. We started our hike where most folks do, like I mentioned, um, at the Bar Street Trailhead. The day was ideal, as as ideal as you could hope for. Um, it was sunny, breezy, and not too humid for Florida standards. We planned to hike around for a couple hours and then have a picnic. Everything went pretty much as planned until it didn't, and it took a very unexpected, eerily weird turn. On a positive side, though, we did have a few chats with new trail friends about plants that we saw that day and foraging. Um, We saw some gators and turtles along the way that offered a pretty spectacular view of the sweet tea-colored river and hammocks of pine, palm, and cypress. Um, One thing you'll see about a lot of Florida um, state parks is we do have, you know, the darker colored water that resembles sweet tea, as we like to say. (laughs) So the still and calmness of this peaceful moment added an interesting prelude of what was about to come. (laughs) Sorry, I'm also an English major, so a lot of this probably sounds like a novel of some sort. Speaking of, so while chatting um, between reading entries out of a novel, which I think was actually Alan Watts, don't judge me, I know that's probably super cliche for a hike um, and being in nature. (laughs) So... You know, while we were just like reading and having fun, um, I was using like sticks to trace lines in the sandy bank bed as my friend was also mindlessly toying with like sticks and things, you know, as you do as you're like chatting. Um, So as she was rolling the stick between her fingers, she abruptly stops talking mid-sentence and asks, wait, is this a bone? Cut to both of us staring intently in complete incredulous silence for probably about a good minute. Before we realized that, yeah, it was indeed some some bone of some sort, uh, I started, uh, yeah, that's that's a bone. But like, from what? <laughs> the air started to feel a bit heavier as we contemplated this question. We thought it was most likely an animal, but in an effort to dissipate any uncertainty, my friend gently poked around the ground ahead of us. We laughed it off while making jokes about finding a dead body until we found another bone. You want it to happen until it actually does. And as someone who binges a lot of podcasts about murder and crime, shout out Morbid and uh, Anatomy of Murder and all that, um, of course, those are things you think about is, oh, what would I do in this situation? But actually being in the situation, a little different, a little less uh, romantic, not that murder is romantic, but romanticized in a way. So obviously... Finding another bone, losing all confidence at this point, all the optimism suddenly leaving our bodies as we then uncovered 
a rather large vertebrae, oh, yeah, like an the, actual intact, like whole whole vertebrae, I and as I, as one happens yes, to find on the, the banks of hiking. river. There's, and you know, I've seen vertebrae, not like a, a real vertebrae, but of course, I I work in healthcare, um, not in a clinical capacity of any sort, but you know. In doctors' offices, they have skeletons. They have, yeah. You see all of that, you know, um, like in an orthopedic office Mm -hmm. and stuff. You don't expect to find it at the bank of a river. Yeah, with finding the vertebrae, our laughter stopped, and with each stroke of our branch shovel gently excavating another part of the fairly intact skeleton, we let out a disheartened collective, oh... And with another vertebrae revealed, we let out another more defeated, oh, <laughs> with our confidence now successively crushed at this point, we stopped standing to take in an entire spinal column we just unearthed. What do we do? I asked. We were understandably shaken. Just then, we looked towards an unwitting group of four hikers passing, probably having what looked like a delightful, wholesome family day so far as they cheerfully called out howdy what y'all looking at (laughs) we looked at each other then back to them uh do any of you know how to identify bones understandably taken back by this unexpected morbid turn they were silent for a moment a couple of them joined us and looked down then scratched their heads and tried to think of possible forest creatures that matched this description you don't think it's human right the one that seemed the most knowledgeable answered It's mammal for sure. Uh, Honestly, I'm not sure what it is, though. We continued chatting about what we hoped it could be and what to do next until they politely bid farewell, wishing us luck. So now, with Weeks' uh, cell signal and not wanting to disturb or further disturb the natural environment and or crime scene, we made note of our location, took photos, and headed to the trailhead. Once to our car, we called the ranger and police, One suggested the other, and I honestly don't remember in what order because what the heck did we just discover? In the days that followed, uh, we had a few officials reach out to us from the state park and police. They confirmed the bones were suspicious, and a ranger had us describe how to find the location so he could personally check it out. Our fears weren't abated when he called us back to say, yeah, I can't tell what these are without a skull. So we're going to send them out to an expert. Insert us spiraling, thinking we did in fact find a dead body. And we're now going to end up a footnote in some murder podcast. After a week, a ranger called in to let me know, good news, they're not human. I breathed the biggest (laughs) sigh of relief. Yeah, thank God. Uh, That's awesome. So what was it then? He responded, chill and evenly, they're not sure. Probably a bobcat or something. Okay. So okay. anyway, that was the story about the time I found a skeleton that we thought was human, but actually wasn't. But who knows? Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that story. That's fucking weird. I don't know what I would do if I found bones. I mean, even if they were chicken bones, I'd be like, oh, my God, bones. What? No. Like, no. Please, no. Okay. Well, my story is... Well, on that note. Well, on that note, yeah. My story is pivoting away from bones, but still interesting. I'm going to talk about the San Luis Valley. It's pretty darn interesting. There's a lot of UFO sightings there, um, and we'll get into that. So, let's get into it. (laughs) 
let's let's do it let's do it all right well a lot of this information is coming from um different websites and stuff i'm going to tell you first about the park the san luis valley saw its first settlers between 12,000 and 13,000 years ago the ute are the oldest continuous residents of what is now the state of colorado by 1400 AD, other Native American tribes joined the Utes in the San Luis Valley region. Navajo from the north, Tiwa, Taiwa people from the south, the Comanche, I hope I'm saying all this right, the Kiowa, okay, Comanche, you know what? The viewers can decide, or the listeners, <laughs> the viewers, okay, the listeners can decide. Uh, the Kiowa, the Cheyenne, and Yurapao. I hope I'm saying all that right. I don't mean to offend. Uh, from the Eastern Plains. Although the 8,000 square mile valley is an alpine desert with stark expanses and North America's tallest sand dunes, two enormous aquifers lie beneath the dry su surface. These supply waters to a series of freshwater lakes and rivers, including the beginnings of the Rio Grande. The availability of the water in the San Luis Valley made the area a highly valued seasonal hunting ground for early tribes as the warm season brought the area to life with rich diversity of flora and fauna. Uh, when settlers came into the valley between 1800 and 1960, here and there across the valley, great arastras were found. Arastras are devices used by the Spanish to crush ore. They were mill-like devices of stone and massive in proportion. These arastras apparently date from 1680. At times, it is speculated that they date as far back as the 16th century, the first century of Spanish occupation in the New World. On the eastern slopes of the Sangre de Cristos, there is a series of tunnels high on the mountainside marked by one Visigothic cross, which indicates Spanish origin. The cross apparently marks a great mine, but exploration has actually never uncovered an ounce of ore from this place. Uh, between the time of these ore mills and the settlement of the valley in the 19th century, there was a period in which the Ute were masters of the area. Because they had dark complexions, the Ute, the Ute were referred to by the neighboring tribes as being quote-unquote blue and their valley as the land of the blue sky. The valley is often called this by the residents, although now it's come to mean the sunshine's close to 365 days a year. Uh, unfortunately, in 1641, when an expedition led by Governor Luis de la Rosas captured 80 Utes and took them to Santa Fe, where they were forced to labor in workshops. Native American slavery is a dark part of the Valley's history, and records indicate that emancipation did not come to the Native Americans until about five years after the Emancipation Proclamation was put into effect, which is super fucked up. Yeah, it's so shitty. I, ugh. From their association with the Spanish, the Utes learned horsemanship and by 1670 were ranging widely. Artifacts indicate that the Utes even traded with the natives of the Great Lakes region. The vast San Luis was once a northern frontier of the Spanish Empire. The Spanish began exploring the area during the 1500s and during the 17th and 18th centuries. Occasional expeditions came from Santa Fe to the valley and surrounding mountains in exploration parties on military campaigns and to trade. The Ute made a treaty of peace with the United States in 1849, 
after the Mexican-American War. Shortly after, settlers from New Mexico established several small settlements in what is now Colorado. However, most of the region remained largely unsettled until the area became the territory of the United States around 1850. Afterwards, these areas began to be settled by New Mexico families. By a series of treaties between 1850 and 1880, the Ute of the Valley were forced to move to the Ute Mountains, uh, Southern Ute and Hinta Reservations, I hope I'm saying that right, of Western Colorado and Utah. They continued to play a role in Saguache, Colorado, again, in the northwestern corner of the valley from Los Pinos Agency to the west until they lost their extensive reservation due to the Meeker Massacre in 1879. Afterward, extensive settlement began in the San Luis Valley, primarily by Hispanic farmers and ranchers from New Mexico. This, The first permanent settlement in Colorado, known as San Luis de la Culebra, was established in 1851 on the Rio Culebra River on the Sangre de Cristo Grant. A year later, Fort Massachusetts was established north of San Luis to protect the early settlers in the valley. The establishment of agricultural communities by people from New Mexico continued to grow slowly. The valley population soared in the late 1870s and 1880s when Mormon settlers from the southern U.S. and Utah established the towns of Manasa, Sanford, and Richfield. Manasa and Sanford became prosperous agricultural communities. Today, agriculture and stock raising of both sheep and cattle remain a major base of the economy. The valley has a diverse Aglo and Hispanic population. Many of the Hispanic people are directly descended from the original New Mexican settlers. Now I'm going to talk about the land itself. Um, as one of the largest high desert valleys in the world, the San Luis Valley lies at its highest altitude of 8,100 feet, spanning over 65 miles wide and 125 miles long. Located in the south central part of Colorado, the valley spreads into northern New Mexico and spans more than 500,000 acres. Surrounded by the peaks of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains to the east, and the San Juan Mountains to the west, the valley is home to 14,000-foot jagged peaks, towering sand dunes, hot springs, waterfalls, and is the headwaters to the Rio Grande River. There are a ton of activities to do because of the diversity of the region. This includes Sand Dunes National Park. Within Sand Dunes National Park, there's hiking, backpacking, camping, sandboarding, and there's just a few popular activities available. The valley's Peaks include Mount Lindsay, Crestone Peak, Ellington and Chandler Point, San Luis Peaks, Little Bear, Kit Carson, and Blanca. They range in difficulty and duration, so please be careful if you hike these. But if hiking is not your vibe, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> no. But if hiking is not your vibe, then there are a lot of places that you don't have to hike. There's Again, several hot springs in the valley. There's an alligator farm, which is interesting. So there's an alligator farm. Um, and so I actually have family that own like an alligator farm. Yeah, but like not in a good way. Like they go around. Stealing alligators. They go around waiting with their like, you know, knee high boots and their 
shotguns and they essentially steal the alligators from their mothers or they'll steal the mothers themselves to you know hide them yeah um use their hide for things and for me and that sort of thing so they so funny story my family so my family like my brothers and sisters and stuff were kind of like um the outsiders from our family Uh, the rest some of (laughs) the weird cousins um so the rest of my family uh you know they're a lot more like christian leaning Mm -hmm. and you know conservative yeah and and i would say you know they're much more into um you know specific activities that are kind of country so Mm -hmm. you know they uh Mm -hmm. go shooting and and all that kind of stuff hunting so they were actually creating a reality show (gasps) yeah where it was about their their gator farm and them going out but did a company actually <laughs> yes. like call them up and want to do this? Yeah, them? they absolutely did. And it, it was funny because they were excited about it at first I and mean, we would hear about I it. I would be excited. If, if a company was like, hey, your life is interesting enough to record and put on TV, I'd be like, I don't think so. But yes, yeah. let's do it. Absolutely. I mean, that's your initial yeah. uh, thought, right? <laughs> I mean, they uh, unsurprising to us and everyone else in the world that aren't them um it actually turned out that the whole skew of the show was to make them look really stupid and oh, like country bumpkin yeah type, like, and yeah and immoral and which i mean undoubtedly like, i mean arguably. yeah but like it's messed up to turn them into that if they are not like a bunch of hillbillies i actually don't know what ended up happening with that but anyway um so gators yeah, well, farm. so. Gator Farms. I don't know how ethical this Gator Farm is because it is in near, in like a valley desert type area. And so they, I'm assuming these gators are not local. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming they were, they traveled. The, ga- the great gators the ga- that came down from the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Descended upon us. They're desert gators. They're, you never heard of your, your typical yeah, desert typical, gator? Typical desert gators, yeah. <laughs> Well, Gator Farms, and well, my personal favorite, the UFO Watchtower. Ooh. Yes, Ooh. I have always wanted to go here. Disclosure. Uh, disclosure. It's open to the public year-round for a small fee. I don't know what the fee is, but it's small. The facility <laughs> features an observation platform, campground, and gift shop. So you can camp near it, which I think is pretty cool. There's a large garden. And buy a gift. And buy a it, gift. It could be a small keychain of a mountain gator, a desert it, gator. Now <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's not. There's or they have an Alan Watts travel guide. <laughs> to go with your mountain gator keychain. <laughs> the, the essentials. A gator for every region. <laughs> Yes, gift shops, campgrounds. There's a large garden where visitors are welcome to leave behind meaning, leave behind a meaningful souvenir to increase the energy and karma. The vibes. So that, the vibes. So that's when you pull a crystal out of your ass and place it in the garden. Why out of your ass, though? Most charged. Oh. Okay. So have you heard, ever heard of this thing where it's like... 
when you lay on your back and you, shine you your tank to the sun and you charge your asshole. Oh, so you're familiar. You do this often. <laughs> That's why I put my crystals for a reason. I mean, that is the best place to it charge is. them. So best place. Yeah. <laughs> this is just the opener. This is just the opener. Oh my god. With no light pollution and an elevation of over 7,600 feet, you can see the stars perfectly. The observation tower provides a 360 view of the valley. The campground welcomes campers all summer long. Many people come from all over the world to here. I can't stop thinking about mountain gators. Many people from all over come here specifically to spot UFOs and feel the energies this land is said to give off. There have been many sightings and encounters um, through for years. Uh, anyway, I pulled a few articles and stories and the art a few articles. One of these articles, God damn it. One of these articles does come off the CIA website. Um, and this specific article I'm going to start with is called a pair of Pueblo youths photograph strange light in the San Luis Valley. That is a mouthful. So I pulled this off the CIA website. I wish it gave me more of the paper, but it's the CIA. So they blocked off a bit <laughs> recently. You know, what was it this year or uh, last year or something? They CIA the said, yes, we have aliens. They, yes, they're like, yes, <laughs> we have aliens. <laughs> aliens are among us. And all of us said, disclosure, all of us said, awesome. Lower the gas prices. <laughs> But can I afford a home? <laughs> and they said, but aliens. And he said, mm-mm. Unless aliens are going to pay my mortgage, <laughs> I don't give two shits. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know when this news article came out because they did cut off the date, but it feels dated. I read it, and it feels kind of dated. Um, so these two boys named Edward Boggs, he was 19, and Bill McFedries. McFedries? Okay. He was also 19. They drove to the valley on a Friday evening and they went there to camp. Now, what makes me feel like this was way back in the day is because of how much money they took for food and gas. Eight dollars. Of the mountain gator. <laughs> so that's what makes me feel like this was a bit ago because they took eight dollars for food and gas. Okay. Yeah. Then they entered the area at about 9.30 p.m. So the guys were trying to get to the location of the King Ranch, which was the site of numerous UFO sightings. A lot of people were reluctant to talk to them, and a lot of them, like, kind of made jokes, I guess, just not taking it seriously in the area. But the two ended up getting there around 10.30 p.m., and they were a quarter mile west of the sand dunes road. Uh, they got into the entrance. They set up their camp, their tripod, and they began to watch. They were three three quarters of a mile up on the mountain overlooking the valley. And, yeah, they set their camera up on a tripod. And Bill, good thank you, Bill. good old Bill, entered, he, they're, they're logging this. And his first entry is at 11 p.m. 
And from then, it wasn't until 1 a.m. or 1.20 a.m. and the entries reported no sightings. A sighting then was made right after that, still at 1.20 p.m. And Boggs, who is Edward Boggs, he said it was like someone turned on a light. There, out in the prairie, was a brilliant white diffused light about the size of a penny, about 50 times larger than the dots of the light made by cars and the lights of Alamasa in the distance. They took two photographs of it to prove ourselves the next day that we really saw something. The boys watched the light and its antics until 3 a.m. During this time, it traveled north. It appeared to go to the Great Sand Dunes National Monument. Then it headed towards their car and finally swung in an arch back to the site it was first seen. It zipped all around. And imagine watching that for two hours. I'd be like, oh my God. I don't know. I, I think I would feel like anxious and also excited. I don't know if I would stick around. Oh, I don't know if I would. I can't say if I wouldn't. <laughs> I, you know, I really... Like five minutes, like, all right. Yeah. Uh... It was a little much. I don't know. I can't say I wouldn't, but I can't say I would. Especially being out there alone. Yeah, and they're on the, you know, um towards a mountain on top of a mountain they're so totally alone i mean good for them for being curious enough to stay out there for this and getting photos i do not have photos to post because the cia blocked off the photos but i but i will but i will uh post the photo of the article itself um anyway during the trip it says during this trip the ufo traveled at varying speeds it's light changing in intensity and color all the time. The object remained below the horizon from the boy's vantage point up on Mount Blanca. Bill said he finally fell asleep. How do you fall? How? How do you? How? Good old Bill. Good old Bill. He's like, mm, I'm tired. These aliens be crazy. They're just dancing around. I'm tired from all this alien gazing. I'm so sleepy. Like what? I could never. Surely we'll be safe Surely through the night. Safe. No probes in this asshole. <laughs> anyway, Edward <laughs> continued to watch until the object blinked out at 3 or 4 a.m. Bill said the experience was frightening, but really? fell asleep. He fell asleep. I'm so scared. I'm sleeping. Like, what? Okay, okay Bill. All right. Uh, particularly when the object headed towards the car. <laughs> Came right at me, got tired, fell asleep. So sleepy. <laughs> so sleepy. Um, even though the, U the UFO was several miles away, that's still too close. Uh, they plan to return to watch the object this weekend. That is all the article says. I don't know if they went back that weekend. Um, I hope they did. I mean, I have no idea. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And I, you hear a lot of that. You hear a lot of the same stories of, the lights moving in crazy directions, changing color, you know, orbs and such. And again, from this article, it seems like it was a bit ago because of the $8. Uh, <laughs> that's like a happy meal at this point. Like that, that won't, that won't get me halfway down the goddamn road in my car. $8, please. I wish, but I thought that was a really, that was interesting, especially at 19. That would be really cool to see, but he was frightened and then fell asleep. Um, <laughs> to remember that like i could like no mm -mm. all right my next story and it's my last one there's a lot of stories actually about this and i tried to pick 
ones that I thought were super interesting. The ones about the kids, I just thought that was something like I would totally do. Like drive out to this UFO site, climb a mountain, find one, not fall asleep. But definitely, I feel like we could all relate to doing something like that. And this next one, I th- I feel, I'm sure a few people have heard of this story because I've heard of it mentioned before. But this is the first time I actually read, like really read about it. And it's super weird. So yeah, this one's about a horse. And people may... Like I said, may have heard this story before. It's really not from that long ago. So this story is about a horse named Lady. And the horse was taken care of by Harry King. But the horse belonged actually to his sister. They lived in the valley area. So Harry went out in the morning and couldn't find his horse. He went searching for her. And when he found her, he found her lying on her side. Her head was completely stripped bare to the bone. It gets achy. Um, warning, it gets achy. He said that the, the precision cuts on the flank couldn't have been done by a coyote or a pack of them. And that a strong chemical smell akin to acetone lingered in the air around her body. The carcass was poked, prodded, and was renamed Snippy. I don't know why they changed her name from Lady to Snippy. A name Nellie used for her horse from then on. When Nellie and her husband began walking around the grizzly scene, the odor was still in the air and the bones appeared to have been exposed to the sun for years. She's not looking too hot. It's not her best. No, it's not her finest day. So the bones looked like they were exposed to the sun for years and they they said that it had a pinkish cast. It was not bloated and the smell was not of decomposition. So I, you know, I'm no expert but you know when a body's laying outside i'm of an animal or whatever i'm assuming that under the hot sun for a few days it's going to be kind of rank it's going to be you know kind of bloated and icky and there's going to be vultures and such around it but there was no predators no vultures no buzzards were found around the area it was not appealing to them yeah so it was not a typical horse death (laughs) i guess sorry The horse's footprints ended about 100 feet from where the remains were found. So unless this horse just jumped 100 feet and then died, I don't know, they don't know how to explain it. There was no other prints around. And Nellie and her husband found 15 burns that could be circular exhaust burns. 100 yards north of the carcass, they found a three-foot bush and bushes within a 10-foot radius of that bush that had been flattened to about 10 inches from the ground. Six indentations, two inches across and six inches deep formed a circle three feet in diameter. So something, it seems like something landed on those bushes. Something of three feet, that's kind of small, three feet in diameter, but it seems like something like just landed on those bushes. Something unidentified. (laughs) Perhaps a flying object. On the bushes, Nellie found some gelatin-like green globs. It's achy. And a piece of metal covered in horse hair. What? Yeah. After touching these what? with her hands. Why? What the heck? These people, these people in these in these stories do not know <laughs> a thing or two about alien stuff <laughs> they haven't seen the movies though. they have not seen men in black 
they haven't they haven't seen alien they haven't seen any of these they haven't seen any oh especially mars attacks okay they haven't seen anything about alien culture and education (laughs) (laughs) just touching green glue gloob (laughs) just gloob they describe it as gloob and i just see it as like that green slime like you know in a monster movie when the saliva comes out of their mouth and like glops onto someone's face that's what i imagine and then it burns their soul and face and it just and soul it just goes way into everything but after touching these her hands began to burn and hurt until she washed them hello 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 exactly like ooh, green gloob and like (laughs) like what are you gonna put in your pocket like take a chunk of it eat it like that's disgusting like this looks safe like oh okay (laughs) the only footprints around by then were those of the people nelly knew had been there with her Nellie reported the incident to then Sheriff Ben Phillips, who declared the horse had been killed by lightning. Oh, Ben. Sweet, sweet, simple Ben. Sweet old Ben. He wanted to sweep this right under the rug. He was like, lightning, done. Close it. Case closed. Another one for the books, Ben. But whether reports for the time period did not show any activity. So weather reports showed no lightning activity. So Dwayne Martin, a United States Forest Service employee, arrived with a Geiger counter and began testing. The area around the burn marks were, were radioactive, and so were the green globes and yeah. the horse hair wrapped in metal. Maybe that's why it burned. If I see anything that's like neon green That's glue, just classic. I, that's just classic radioactive. radioactive. Like... Hello, Nellie, if you're listening. Nellie, you fucked up. Like, Anyway, residents and visitors also reported strange phenomena. One man said his car was followed by a top-shaped object. A top-shaped? Top-shaped. Oh, like a turn top. Like a top where you, like, spin? Okay. Okay, because I was like, what's a top shape? No, like like the toy, like yeah. a top shape. Uh, okay. You get what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. No, I was like, wow. what's a top shape? Like a t-shirt? Like <laughs> a top hat? Toy. Yes, yeah. it's I like where you spin on the ground. Means yep. I'm um, like, is it shaped like Abe Lincoln's top hat? Yeah, Even though I learned that that's not a top hat. His hat is not a top hat. The one that Abe wore. It's called something different, and I can't remember. But that's but, that's your history lesson for today. It's so called it's called something different. different. Look it up. Look Google it. it. I'm not going to. Tell us. Yeah, and then you tell us. But it's not a top hat. <laughs> but a college student said both his rear tires blew out as he approached the an object as it sat in a field, and two sheriff deputies were followed by an orange globe, then threatened with their jobs if they wrote reports on it. No. Orange orbs. They're everywhere. I was just talking about orange orbs. A friend of mine has been spotting them in in Apopka, Florida. And she has video of this and she's seen them a lot. There's also the orbs of Oviedo. We'll get into that in a different episode. But there's some crazy shit that happens in Florida, not just with the people or the mountain gators, but also with the orbs. Several days after the horse was found, police at the nearby Great Sand Dunes found Dr. John Altschuler. 
he was trespassing on the monument after dark. So the cops were like, hey, guy, hey, dude, what you doing? Can't be doing this. Like, mm-mm. He then told them he was watching for UFOs. When the officers learned that Dr. Altschler's area of expertise was in the study of blood coagulation, they decided to let him off the hook if he would take a ride out to Harry King's ranch and view the remains of this horse. <laughs> a, as a medical expert, could make some sense out of it. Hey, do us a favor. Hey, man. I'll let you off real quick, but you got to do me a favor. I need you to come out to this ranch, and I need you to look at this horse. It's it's dead. Um. So, by the way, I looked yes. it up. Yes. Um. Abe Lincoln's hat was called a stovepipe. Ha! A stovepipe. And I think the difference, I'm going to get into this real quick. The difference is a top hat's more like a magician's hat, I think, where it, like, kind of flick. Tell me if I'm wrong flares out a little bit so it starts a little narrow and kind of flares out just a little bit abe's hat goes straight up and stays the same mm -hmm. diameter yeah. well Am it, I correct? all it says is it's seven or eight inches high Oof. but yeah i think that would be the difference i mean yeah i i mean i'm sure there's a, a lot of other differences but <laughs> one that i can think of is i think i i think they're like just shaped differently right. in general um, surprisingly near uh neither of us are experts on um i'm not a hatter 18th, 19th century hats. <laughs> I am, do not come from a bloodline of hatters. Uh, wish I did. I also learned that hats used to be made with mercury. These yeah, it was hats. something toxic. Was something toxic. It was made. There were a specific kind of hat, and it was it was a something velvet hat, okay. and they were super popular because they were incredibly soft, uh -huh. and they were made with mercury. And so people think that Matt is a hatter came from um, that. It comes from Mad Hatter disease, better known as mercury poisoning yes, in the 19th century. Fur I... treated with mercury was used to make felt hats. Hatters mm -hmm. were confined in small spaces and breathed toxic mercury fumes, resulting in mad or irrational behavior. Also, um, not to veer off. We're veered. We're way veered. Um, so one of my friends knew somebody who was having like mercury poisoning. What they didn't, Symptoms? they, yeah, okay. which they didn't know at the, at the time, what, but she yeah. was like sick for years. Um, so a lot of people, younger folks might not know, but back in the day, uh, for dental fillings, they mm -hmm. actually used silver or something that had, um, that was treated with silver or had, or sorry, was treated with mercury rather, or had some component of mercury. I so, have silver fillings. You do? I, I, I think those are the safe ones. I, I mean, I hope so. No, they, they are. They would have taken them out by now. Well, or they, wait, maybe they wouldn't. They are slowly taking them out, actually. Oh, okay. Like I, I have, hope you're okay. I mean, I hope I'm okay. <laughs> is, is this where my mental illness stems from? That's probably There's right. nothing wrong with me. I just have mercury poisoning. <laughs> it's so Guys, easy. it's fine. It's fine. I just have a little bit, but I only have like three of those silver fillings left that yeah, every yeah, time yeah, I yeah. go, they replace one. <laughs> So each time you go, you lose one mental illness. Yes, I do. It's like one one less mental illness. I got three left. Yeah, just three left. Yep. And um, <laughs> but yeah, so it turned out because they were thinking, was it a type of cancer or autoimmune disease or anything like that? But yeah, it turned out to obviously be an old filling that she got way back in the day How, before. When they, was this filling? How old was she? Uh, she, I think, was in her forties or fifties. Okay. I'm pretty. I don't know. I got these sure. fillings back like, like seventeen years ago. Oh, okay. I mean, maybe go get it checked out. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't hurt. They don't tell me anything. They're just like, you gotta really get these fillings out. They're like filled with mercury. But they don't tell me. They're just like, ha ha ha. 
the white fillings are better. Just filled to the rim with just with mercury. With mercury. Okay, so anyway, I'm sorry, guys. Anyway. Where was I? So we're talking about a horse. This horse was skinned. This horse was radioactive. His owner was just rubbing herself down with green glue. <laughs> <laughs> we, it, she burned and she's like, oh my god, and then she washed it off. And she was fine. Uh, she's fine. I mean, I hope I, you're fine, I, Nelly. I hope, Nelly. I hope you're okay. Um, and then the cop found a guy snooping around, and he was like, "Oh, you're into blood? Perfect. Perfect. Please come to this ranch. I have a horse. You don't really have a choice. Though. You don't have a. You don't have a choice. You're either getting arrested or you're coming to look at this dead horse. So of course, he was like, "Oh yeah, let's go." So he found the animal's lungs, heart, and thyroid were completely missing. Removed with some of the cleanest cuts he had ever seen, like surgical cuts. The brain and abdomen organs were gone. He said there was no material in the spinal column. At the edge, the sliced skin was a deep black color. Even stranger to him was the lack of blood. Many years later, he told reporter he told a reporter, I have done hundreds of autopsies. You can't cut into a body without getting some blood. But there was no blood on the skin or the ground. There was no blood anywhere. The outer edges of the skin were cut firm, almost as if they had been cauterized by a modern-day laser. But there was no cauterizing laser technology like that in 1967. This happened in 1967. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not real. It's not super recent. It's not super recent, but wow. Oh, Nellie, we, we oh. forgive you now. Nellie, I forgive you. You did, Girl, you did not you know. You never saw Mars attack. You didn't see aliens. You didn't see men in black. A guard was placed at the gate of the ranch pending investigation by the APRO. News of possible UFO involvement eventually reached the Condon Committee, a group founded, funded by the U.S. Air Force from 1966 to 68 at the University of Colorado. Their purpose was to study UFOs. They reached out to pathologist Dr. Robert Adams, who agreed to take a look at the animal and present his findings. Adams examined Lady, a.k.a. Skip. Skip. Skippy. 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 And the evidence. He concluded there was no unearthly causes, at least not on my mind, end quote. Harry King saw no one in that area before, the fi- before finding the horse. But Angus King... Um, reported seeing and hearing an unknown flying object over the house. Nellie contended Adam's conclusion failed to account for the chemical odor and lack of blood at the scene. So he was just like, this, this is normal. This is normal. He just went in there, put on a white coat, said, God damn it, I'm a professional, and this is normal. And they're like, you didn't even look at the evidence. The mutilation was blamed on space aliens, but those who didn't believe stories of flying saucers attributed the injuries to everything from secret government projects to work of satanic cults, of course, until until fucking rock music, Elvis, (laughs) fucking it's all Elvis (laughs) bringing rock and roll into my house. Um, until Superior Court Judge Charles E. Bennett of Denver and his wife said they witnessed three reddish-orange rings in the sky that maintained a triangular formation. Orbs, orbs, orange rings, guys. They go back, the way deep, way back. 
They moved at high speeds and made a humming sound. If y'all listen to the first episode, I'm going to just say, what if I walked out of that tent and there was orange orbs? Humming sound, guys. Then there were small black jet planes. People claim to have seen buzzing the area where Snippy died. And this is still unsolved. They still, I mean, it's solved, but. So what were the the organs that were missing? It was a thyroid. It was a thyroid, lungs, and the brain. There was no liquid in or fluid in the spinal column at all. It was like they sucked out the marrow. And I was like. As well as. <laughs> because I wonder with like the radiation and everything, yeah. like um, I know the thyroid, it absorbs radiation much more than other organs. It does, which is why when you go get certain x-rays, uh-huh. not a CT I learned recently, but if you go get like a standard x-ray, they will give you um, a lot of times a thyroid guard. Um, you actually don't want to wear one of those during a CT scan because it goes around you and apparently it can deflect a lot more radiation that then you absorb more. Anyway, this is all interesting. So it was the lungs, heart and thyroid were completely missing with surgical like instant, like cuts, clean cuts, brain and abdominal organs were gone and no material or fluids, whatever in the spinal column. So I wonder if, those types of organs and tissues and everything and components of the body, if they are more easily broken down by radiation. I know, like, even though the thyroid absorbs more um, radiation. You think they just melted? I don't know. Because, I, I mean, I, I, disclosure, well, I don't. She's not a radiologist. <laughs> I'm not a radiologist. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> But, um, I mean, I'm not, again, I, I am not a clinical person. I don't, I've never studied medical, but, um, I'm, I just wonder because that's interesting that it would be those organs because those are typically more of the areas where you would, it would get affected by radiation as in like, yeah. if we're talking about a DNA degradation, degradation, right? Like yeah. the breakdown and, and all that. So I, I wonder about that, but. Yeah. I also know. Because he said that the lungs, heart, and thyroid were cut clean. It's so the article says. Well, I think it's saying it's so precise. So precise. That so, it, lo- it so would be a professional or something We're going to put a new human. theory out there. Did they just melt away? <laughs> Disintegrate? Did they just like, if disintegrate? Like, some if there was some radiation. High intense radiation. Right. Was it like a Did they solar just, flare or right, something? Like, I don't know. Just a singular I, solar <laughs> flare directly on the on, <laughs> Skippy, poor old Skippy. There's, you know, there's probably some medical professionals out there cringing, being screaming at Amanda, being like, never let her on the show again. Like these idiots. I mean, they're probably saying a lot of things about me too. They're like, (laughs) what are they? No, what? They have no idea what they're talking about. But you know, full Um, disclosure, we're not medical professionals. You know. Shocking. Like, we're, we're not. I know I know we kind of sound like it, but yeah. we are not. Yeah. So Sorry. that is the story of um, Lady Skippy. Okay. And Skippy. um Lady Lady Skippy. Mm. And that's some of the weird shit that's happened in this area. And also Sand Dunes National Park has also a huge place, which is within the valley, a huge place for sightings, weird things that happened. 
Um, I wanted to get a little bit into cryptids, but I'm not going to do that today because there are a lot <laughs> of cryptids as well within these parks. And people believe it's because of all of the native tribes that have been there and like, yeah. you know, their, their folklore and the things they see and the mm -hmm. things that they can feel and, and all that kind of stuff. They, mm -hmm. they believe that there's a lot of stories from them based on the things that they've seen in mm -hmm. this area and then other people have seen them as well. Right. Um, so. So, and on another note, um, talking about the indigenous tribes and native peoples of, um, you know, we went over a lot of different stories that incorporated that. And of course, in Colorado, there are a lot of tribes. For any of our lit people out there, <laughs> actually, I mean, this is, it is a really good book. Um, I recently read it because me and one of our other mutual friends, we went to Colorado earlier this year. And I, I always like to grab a book from wherever I'm going to visit. Um, either fiction or nonfiction doesn't really matter, but more so to kind of like give you another glimpse into, I guess, culture of the region, history of the region, etc., perspectives from different groups, etc. One book that I bought while I was there was Sabrina and Karina. I thought you were going to say Sabrina the Teenage Witch. No. Now those be like, no, I mean, no, I no. love that show. <laughs> Sabrina and Karina is, I mean, while Sabrina the Teenage Witch is also a great uh, story, uh, Sabrina and Karina, it is a collection of stories by the author Kali Fajardo Anstein. Great book. So I highly encourage um, everyone to read that and stuff if you're interested. And if you guys have any cool stories about this area or if you actually have visited Sand Dunes National Park and experiencing creepy or or just in, just interesting overall and same in the valley itself by the you could email at phonehomepodcast at gmail and just send in Send it, correct us with stuff. Yeah. Correct us. We did, we we tried so hard to do the best research we could for this. Some of this is actually kind of difficult to find some articles. Um, some of them aren't fully like meshed together. The CIA definitely does blot blank out some stuff. And that was that was diff that was frustrating to find. Some of these, one of these that I read was from 1971, and I had to go in and actually edit out a lot of the language because it was um, offensive, especially to native tribes. And I, I did have to edit it because it was painful to read and I would absolutely never do that. Uh, so yeah, when it comes to pronunciation or if I left out anything about any of the tribes or any of the history or anything, just let me know. Well, um, thanks Steph for letting me come on here. It's a lot of fun. And she'll be back when I do the Oviedo episode. That's going to be your job to research it that. Was a, okay, yes. cool. <laughs> That's it for today's episode. Stay safe and don't touch the green glube. Episodes can be heard on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can find all the resources used for the research of this episode in the show notes. Remember to subscribe and follow. New episodes premiere every Monday and Wednesday.